Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we welcome back Helena Cobbin, who is a veteran analyst of international affairs and an anti-imperialist activist who campaigns for human equality at all levels. She is a Quaker who lives in Washington, D.C., which she describes as the belly of the beast. And she used to live here in Charlottesville, Virginia, which I describe as too close to the belly of the beast. Helena has authored seven books on international issues, four of which have been about the Middle East and for 20 years she contributed a regular column about global affairs to the Christian Science Monitor. She's also been a publisher. Her company Just World Books has helped midwife the work of writers like Miko Pellet, Leila El Haddad, Leila Abdel Razak, and myself, David Swanson. She's the head of the nonprofit Just World Educational, which has some great web-based programming, most recently on Syria. She's also resumed blogging on her blog Just World world news you can find it at justworldnews.org where her major current preoccupation is the ways the coronavirus crisis affects the hegemonic role the u.s has played in world affairs since 1945 helena cobbin welcome back to talk nation radio it's good to be with you david how are you doing i can't complain probably will how about you Doing pretty pretty much okay there are far too many sirens we're on a major route to one of the big hospitals here uh, fortunately, I don't hear them, but I'm sorry to know they're happening. Um, let, let's talk about some of the things you've been writing about at JustWorldNews.org. Uh, how do you compare the, the handling of the coronavirus crisis in various parts of the world? Well, I think it's pretty well understood that our country here has handled it disastrously, as has the UK government of Boris Johnson. Um, I look at the death rate per 100,000 people in the population for various countries. You can find it on CNN. You can find it on various websites. And our death rate um, per 100,000 people is probably um, close to 30. Where, and um, in the UK, it's higher. In France, it's higher. Spain, it's higher. In China, it's 0.3 deaths per 100,000 of population. And they have actually only had one death from coronavirus in the past month. So essentially, they've licked it there. And it's been licked um, similarly in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, um, and in Cuba. So these are all countries with a robust public health infrastructure, which obviously we don't have. I've seen statistics, maybe you've got the accurate numbers, the U.S. has something like 4% of the global population and something like 30% of the coronavirus crisis. So it's so per capita, it's not doing particularly great, but I guess there are a few countries that are, that are even worse on a per capita basis. That's right. And then if you look at how countries come economically out of the, um, the medical crisis, we are still mired in the depth of a really devastating economic um, recession here. And it's, you know, people, our presidents and various right-wing activists around the country, mainly right-wing activists, 
say, you know, we've got to get the country back to work and um, that essentially we've now finished, we've licked the coronavirus crisis, open up the country, you know, and they pick up their AR-15s and other assault weapons and go to the uh, Michigan legislature in uh, Lansing and, you know, try and force the governor to do things. This health crisis is not finished and the economic crisis will continue as long as the health crisis continues. So premature attempts to open up just make things worse, both in terms of their, you know, their gravity and their longevity. So I, I think our country is in a really bad state um, for the next 12 months, whereas China and some of these other East Asian countries um, that have the robust public health infrastructure not only have essentially lick the, the crisis and have the, the capacity it, when there are small recurrences to uh, clamp down on them very speedily. But they, they have also started resuming their serious manufacturing and other economic activities. Um, I, I show that in a, in a couple of graphs that I took from, oh, goodness, I, I've taken economic uh, data from so many sources. But the IMF has some interesting economic data which predicts that by the end of this year, China will show a year-on-year GDP growth of about 1%, which, of course, is a lot less than they've had in recent years, but that the U.S. and the U.K. will have um, GDP, what is the opposite of growth, shrinkage of around 5 to 6%. And honestly, I think that is optimistic. It's more likely to be 10 or 15% that our GDP here is going to go down. People will be massively out of work, and obviously we don't have the kind of social safety net that they have in the UK or other European countries that can help support people at the bottom of the economic pile. It seems like it's very uncertain and could even be worse than you're describing, Helena, because uh, it doesn't it depend a lot on what's distributed and made use of in terms of testing and tracking and developed in terms of vaccines and treatments. Uh, and there are these huge events being planned with, I would think, the, the, the Republican National Convention in, in Charlotte rivaling, the, rivaling the, the Philadelphia flu parade of 1918 for acts of stupidity that could uh, could help spread this thing further. That's true. Um, you know, and there are so many uncertainties, including, honestly, from my perspective, I think it's uncertain whether we'll actually have an election in November. Um, but yes, there will be, you know, super spreader events planned. And meantime, you know, I, I just want to underline the fact that if you're interested, if Anybody who is interested in the well-being of the American people, as I am, we need to look at the strength of our public health infrastructure. And, you know, the decision-making that's been taken at the CDC and at many levels has just been disastrous. Going back to January, when they turned down the option of having a WHO-approved test for the COVID-19 that had been developed in Germany, you know, we could have had that from January on, instead of which they said they wanted to develop their own, and it was a complete chaos. And we still don't have enough testing. We don't have the people who can um, actually read the test. 
because we don't have any kind of functioning public health infrastructure in this country. The, the United States, Helena Coben, has been not just a, a leader in healthcare failures and disastrous uh, responses to this crisis, but at the same time, uh, a leader in military spending and weapons production and weapons exportation and uh, abuse of sanctions and coups and war rehearsals and military flights. Uh, is, there, is there something askew with our, and I'm using R as you do for the U.S. government, is there something askew with, with U.S government priorities. Absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> I, you can't look at this and not see that, not see that the $6 trillion spent on, you know, waging these actual wars for the past 19 years could have been spent on all forms of national infrastructure, including the public health infrastructure. You know, roads, bridges, schools, hospitals, and a, a robust public health infrastructure. Now, I guess you could say in some sense China and the other East Asian nations were lucky because they had SARS in, I think it was 2002, might have been 2004, but back at the beginning of the century. And that gave them a really good sort of rehearsal for how you do this stuff, how you, how you contain viruses. And we're talking now about COVID-19. Coming along, there may be COVID-21, there may be COVID-23, you know, because of the level of overpopulation of the world these days and the fact that, you know, everybody is so close to the wild areas in which wild boars and bats and pangolins and, and whatever are developing new viruses, there will be other global viruses. You know, we've seen more in, in this century between SARS and MERS and now COVID-19. They're going to be coming along. We have climate change, climate-related crises, you know, coming at us faster and faster every year in this century. So, you know, we need the public health infrastructure. We don't have it. And the big part of the reason is because of this focus on military spending, which obviously has had the worst effect for the target of our military spending. Countries in the Middle East, targets of our sanctions, um, but it's also left us impoverished and weakened. And now, you know, I just think of that, like, USS, what is it, the Theodore Roosevelt, a big aircraft carrier, sailing around the Pacific with, they have, I think, 4,600 um, sailors on, on board. One third of them had COVID. Yeah. And... You know, it's like a, a giant cruise ship, <laughs> but, but it, you know, it, it's a cruise ship with a very deadly intent. Well, it always had the deadly intent. Now it's got a new form of death and gives new meaning to the word carrier, right? But uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more with your perspective, Helena. Can I ask a rather minor quibbling sort of question? Because it always comes up for me. Uh, everybody cites this, you know, the wars have cost us $6 trillion over these decades of this so-called war on terrorism during which uh, the U.S. has spent, I'd say, at least three times that on militarism. We aren't justifying the other two-thirds, right? Why do we always pick out this, this fraction of military spending to, to get upset about? You know, I, I think the, the $6 trillion is what a place like the Costs of War Project at Brown University has been able to directly attribute to these acts 
of warfare. Yes, I am well aware, but what about all the other acts of warfare and weapons and bases and troops and all... I I, I totally agree with you. Um, We don't don't need to disagree about that. Um, You know, you need to have... If you're talking about national defense, there are obviously ways to defend our country that are very simple to think of because we have two great oceans and two friendly countries, and that's all we really need, you know, is to, like be able to have a coast guard <laughs> right but uh, no it's the military industrial complex as you and i know is a, is just this huge lobbying machine that gets massive amounts of taxpayer money by feeding on the fears of the electorate and the the, the, the fears of the um, legislators and then uses a chunk recycles a chunk of that money into lobbying for the next round of of ridiculous military spending so you know we've kind of military spent ourselves into a corner at this point other countries have made other better decisions and that's why in some of what i've been writing about david i you know i actually see um this coronavirus having revealed to everybody that this hegemony this um imperial worldwide hegemony that the U.S. has enjoyed um, since 1991, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, is actually a paper tiger, and it's now crumpling into almost nothing. Of course, the decline of empires is never an easy thing, and it's always accompanied by further violence, but this empire is collapsing, and the question is, well, there are a number of questions. One is, what are the opportunities this provides for people around the world to actually build a more just and caring order? And, you know, how, how do we resolve the many issues that are left from this hegemonic empire that the U.S. has had so far? I grew up in a declining empire, right? so I'm kind of familiar with the idea that, like, for my father, it was very unsettling that the whole world is no longer painted pink because the, you know, the sun never sets on the on the British Empire or whatever. But I was delighted to grow up in the 1950s and see, you know, nations around the world, primarily in Africa and Asia, gain their independence. That didn't solve all the problems, but it was an essential first step. And now... You know, something very similar will be happening to the U.S. empire, except with this with this uh, difference. You know, British people through the 1940s, 1950s, knew they had an empire and were proud of it. American citizens don't even really recognize that we have an empire. You see what I mean? It's sort yeah. of like... You know, if you're if you're a white male in this society and a traditional kind of person, you don't see racism. Because if you're at the top of the heap, you don't see what happens to the people underneath you. I've I've heard I've heard you make a number of important points on this topic over the years, Helena, including that the British people were not worse off for the loss of their empire. Um, but my my perspective, as as you know, one in that minority in the U.S. that recognizes the empire, uh, but I mean the even smaller minority that doesn't recognize its collapse. Uh, so when everybody keeps telling me it's collapsing, I keep asking. 
for evidence. I, I see ongoing accelerating militarism. I see successful blocking of a global ceasefire vote at the UN Security Council. It, it seems that people either mean that the U.S. empire should collapse or that it might someday soon collapse, but both of those things have been true for centuries. Uh, so is there some sense in which there's a war that's ending or a base that's closing or a weapon that's being dismantled or a foreign government that's denying dictates from Washington or something else that I would recognize as as actual collapse? Okay, it's still, you know, erosion at the edges, but for example, the uh, Iranian tankers are reaching Venezuela. You right, know, right, despite U.S. threats, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's significant. Um, the, over in East Asia, um, China is doing things both in the South China Sea and with respect to Hong Kong, that the U.S. government just hates to see happen, and there's nothing the um, U.S. can do as of now to prevent that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely see this crumbling of U.S. hegemony happening, but it, it, you know, it, it's still, okay, erosion at the edges, and it's still partial, but Remember, this coronavirus crisis has only been around for three months. World affairs doesn't, like, turn on a dime. In you know, if you look at the decline of the British Empire, I had a very good friend called Mike McGuire, who was a, a naval historian. He said that it was evident to him that from 1919 onwards, the empire was a net drag on the British economy. Yeah. So from 1919, you know, prior to that, the, the British had, like, raped and looted and pillaged all around the world and taken off all the treasures of India and goodness only knows where else and just expropriated them and and so it made them very rich like the other European empires but from 1919 onwards and Mike Maguire had you know really good evidence for this it was a net drag on the British people to have an empire so it took then um, roughly 30 years and another world war before the British electorate and political class recognized that they needed to just divest from India, divest from, you know, Palestine, just pull out, give Ghana and and Kenya and all those other countries their independence. It was just like exhausting. So, yes, it's not going to happen overnight. By the way, what the Brits got out of that was they got a national health service. You know, you give up the empire, and in 1948, you get the National Health Service, which, as I was growing up in the 1950s, was like the marker of why we are proud to be British, we have the National Health Service. Now, it's taken a lot of knocks over the intervening decades, but the British people are not about to give up their National Health Service. I wish we had something like that in this country. No kidding. Um, I, I, you also see some resistance to the sanctions on Iran from the EU. You see Germany talking about kicking out the U.S. nuclear weapons, although you see Poland possibly uh, being forced to take them. Uh, you see South Korea electing a, a government that's very much for peace and unification, but has yet, of course, to to act on it or accomplish it. Uh, is, is there? Do, do you think there's really a significantly more reason to to expect uh, resistance to U.S. 
empire now uh, than than some months back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this the whole debacle about the WHO um, with Pompeo and Trump trying to accuse the WHO of goodness only knows what. And I mean, no other country is going to support that. You know, there are so many things that this coronavirus has revealed about world affairs. And by the way, um, one of the charts that I, I put into my blog was one produced by the San Francisco Fed on the effect of pandemics, of previous pandemics since, I guess, the 14th century on economic growth. So, you know, these were big pandemics. And when a pandemic, when a, you know, a big epidemic really bites, the Fed said that the effects of that can last for 40 years. Um, a bad effect, that is. Yeah. And, you know, because we have the coronavirus so much worse here in this country on a per capita basis, and because our economic situation has been so badly affected by it, and will continue to be for many months to come. You know, it's not like we're all going to go back to school and go back to work in September. No. So, you know, the effect, the economic effects of this, that's what the San Francisco Fed was looking at, won't be over like next year. They will last another 40 years. So, you know, I think we're at the beginning of a new process of imperial decline. It, 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 of course, it is not, you know, it's not even 10% happened yet, but I think we're in it. Do, do you think that through this process there should be, can be, will be uh, some reworking, reforming, or replacing of international structures like the UN. I mean, what in this moment prevents the, every other nation on earth, other than the U, U.S., going outside the UN and signing an agreement for a global ceasefire? Uh, why, why, what, what keeps every country on earth working within a system where the United States has a veto? You know, something like that takes time. I, you know, there is no viable alternative to the UN right now. Um, and uh, it's not just the US that has the veto. All five of the recognized nuclear powers have vetoes, and that includes the UK and France, both of which are sort of legacy imperial powers, if you like. Sure. Um, so coming up with a, with a new structure will take time. I mean, building this United Nations from the kind of the wreckage that had been the League of Nations also took time. And, and, you know, it needed the Second World War, if you like, to accomplish it. But we can start planning and thinking, strategizing, collaborating with, you know, anti-imperial forces and individuals and networks around the world from now on how we build that. And I, I want to under, underline, you know, the need for us to be anti-imperialist in this phase, uh, because that does recognize that we are citizens of an imperial power, and you know, therefore we have special responsibilities. Um, just as like whites in South Africa who really wanted to challenge apartheid 
felt that they had special responsibilities to work under the leadership of the ANC. Um, and so I see us as anti-imperialists here in the U.S. having having special responsibilities to work under the leadership of people who, you know, are the oppressed and have really been hit hard by the empire. Yeah, we, we've got about four minutes left, Helena. I'm interested in the the, the question of, of economic strength and this measure of, of economic growth, because it seems if the people of the United States and the world are to get out of this current crisis and begin uh, reversing the the climate collapse crisis that is you know full steam ahead uh, or you know perhaps carbon emissions are down 17 percent uh there has to be a radical reworking of economics and what counts as as proper development of economics that 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 actually can't include uh unlimited growth forever and ever right well, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of other um, criticisms of GDP as a, me- as a measure of anything, namely that it completely um, erases all the work that women and other people do in caring and, uh, and educating and look, doing elder care and so on. Um, I, I kind of like what Bhutan does, where they have a national happiness index or yeah. something like that. But um, I think at a policy point of view, first of all, we need to recognize that a lot of what's going on in terms of um, Trump stimulus is just bailing out the financiers. So I think the first thing that we need to look at at a policy level is to make sure that if there is stimulus funding, which I think there should be, that it goes to FDR-type New Deal you know, where the government sets up a conservation corps, for example. You know, there's a fine idea. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, Or, or, you know, a public health corps, and the government runs it, and and you you just cut out all those financial institutions. So that's one thing. And then, you know, what should this conservation corps, this this public health corps do? You know, it's obviously, it, it needs to, enact a Green New Deal, essentially. Um, So, yes, I mean, I think we can address all these issues together, uh, along with the massive issue of inequality in our own country. I mean, it's deeply shocking that in an an empire, a globe-girdling empire like the United States, I walk down the streets in Washington, D.C., and I see homeless encampments. And you know, nobody is looking after these people and people are getting tossed out of their rental apartments because of the economic crisis and banks are foreclosing on people's homes. I mean, we have such a lot of work to do at home. Maybe we should just focus on sorting out our problems at home and, and defund the military or repurpose, you know, all the... Um, military industry military industries to producing transit trains and you know hospital machines and things yes. that we really need uh, absolutely, could not agree more. Uh, it's what we we need to to get on with. We've been speaking with Helena Cobbin. You can find her writing at JustWorldNews 
www.helenaoxford.org. Uh, Helena is, among other things, the author of seven books on international issues, uh, uh, the publisher at Just World Books, and uh, she is the head of the nonprofit group Just World Educational. Helena Cobbin, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Great talking with you, David, and uh, let's hope everybody stays safe. Indeed. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.